0: Hi everyone, and welcome to Remaking Tomorrow, a series of conversations about the future of teaching and learning. I'm Greg Baer, the co-author of When You Wonder, You're Learning, Mr. Rogers' Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids. This is a podcast powered by Remake Learning, a network that ignites engaging, relevant, and equitable learning in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. On today's episode, I'm talking with Todd Rose, the co-founder and president of Populous, a think tank working to ensure that all people have the opportunity to pursue fulfilling lives in a thriving society. He's a former faculty member at Harvard University and the best-selling author of several books, including The End of Average, Dark Horse, and most recently, Collective Illusions, Conformity, Complicity, and the Science of Why We Make Bad Decisions. Todd, welcome to Remaking Tomorrow.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. It's
0: it's great to be here. Oh, Todd, it's great to have you here. And I could geek out on End of Average and spend our whole time talking about that (laughs) extraordinary book. But I want to bring us forward to your most recent book, and that is Collective Illusions. Because it's in that book that you argue that as humans, we're so driven to blend in with groups that we're willing to espouse viewpoints that we don't really believe. Can you give us a few examples of that from your research?
1: Look, unfortunately, I wish it was hard to find examples, but, you know, at my think tank, we study what's called private opinion, you know, not just what people say out loud, but what they really think. And we've looked for these collective illusions as part of that. And I can tell you they are everywhere in society right now, including, not surprisingly, in our politics, but also just in our everyday life. So let me give you a few examples just to whet the appetite. If if we stick in politics... Both political parties are in the grips of these collective illusions. We are saying things we don't really believe just because we incorrectly think that our group believes it. So on the left, the most obvious one was the defund the police movement. That never has had higher than 9% support amongst Democrats in private, but publicly a majority will say they're in favor of it because they think their group's in favor of it. On the right, the most sort of insidious one has to do with the 2020 election, where a majority of Republicans will say, out loud that they think it was stolen, but in private, it's closer to 14%. Okay. So the same phenomenon is happening in almost every other aspect of life, including what we want out of our institutions, like education. It's everybody. We knew from a whole bunch of other research that a majority of Americans admit to self-silencing. They just say nothing. They keep their head down. And that's bad enough because it allows a vocal fringe to seem like they're the majority. But it's a whole other problem when people are not just self-silencing but actively saying something different than they really believe. It's called preference falsification. The economist Tim or Curran coined that term. And so we went looking for it with these private opinion methods across 25 highly sensitive issues, everything from things like abortion to gender issues to political issues. And I just was shocked. I mean, I knew this was going on, but even I was just blown away by the extent of it. So just to give listeners that formal definition, when we talk about a collective illusion, it is a phenomenon where most people in a group end up going along with something they don't privately agree with only because they incorrectly think that most people in their group agree with it. And so as a result, entire groups end up doing things that almost nobody actually wanted. How then do they become so persistent? Is it this longing to belong? This whole phenomenon, right? It's gone by a variety of names over the last hundred years, but we've known about it for a while. And only since the age of social media has it just exploded. Before that, you really could count on two hands the number of meaningful illusions that had really harmed society, but now they're just everywhere. And so here's why they exist and why they're all over the place today. And then we can kind of talk about some of the the consequences. But you really just have to know two things about how your brain works to know why we have collective illusions and why they're out of control today. The first is, as humans, we have a bias to conformity. Every one of us has a biological predisposition to want to be with our groups, not against them. It doesn't mean we won't buck them if we have to, but we prefer not to, right? And and if you think about it, from an evolutionary standpoint, there's a lot of benefit to not being on your own. We're a social species. One of my colleagues in the Netherlands did this study on conformity, which I like to bring up just because I can't believe he got paid to do it. He wondered whether bias to conformity extended to something as subjective as who you think is good looking. He got a bunch of people, he put them in brain imaging scanners, and he watched their brain while he gave them this task which is he showed them pictures of people's faces if you were in the study he just said okay rate each face on a scale of like one to five in terms of how attractive it is to you every time you rated a face you instantly were shown the score that most people gave that face of people who had done the study before you but that score was made up and the whole point of the study was half the time you are going to be told that your subjective view of attractiveness was the same as your group, and the other half you're gonna be told it's different than your group. And then what happens in your brain? When you're told that your view of attractiveness is the same as your group, it triggers a dopamine reward response. And conversely, if you're told that your score goes against your group, it triggers an error signal which is this cascading electrical signal that disrupts attention and memory. It's meant to get your attention and tell you to correct your behavior. Something's wrong. That's what I mean when I say we have this hardwired bias to be with our groups. That's the first thing. Obviously, for conformity to work, you actually have to know what your group thinks or else what are you conforming to? This is where it gets problematic. It turns out your brain is spectacularly bad at estimating group consensus because it takes a shortcut. This is no kidding. Your brain assumes that the loudest voices repeated the most are the majority. Maybe that shortcut was okay back in the day when you lived in small communities. Think about the problem today with social media. Besides its democratizing tendency, right? Everybody has a voice. Most people don't realize that if you just look at Twitter alone, 80% of all content is generated by 10% of the users. So the problem is, is, According to Pew Research, that 10% isn't remotely representative of the American public. They tend to be extreme on almost every social issue. So your brain's going to assume that's the majority. And unless you're willing to go against your group, most of us are just going to say nothing, right? We're going to self-silence. But if enough people self-silence, then the vocal fringe is the only view anybody really hears from and the results of collective illusion. So
0: Todd, I'm trying to figure out if I'm glad that I now understand this a little bit more or completely frightened. I feel like probably so many people feel that there's an exhausted majority out there in the world, that the political, the social, the economic narrative to our left, to our right, above and below us is dominating. And in that middle, or I don't know what it is, there's the rest of us. And yet that voice isn't getting expressed. So These collective illusions, can you talk more about some of the systemic and
1: social impacts of what they mean for us? I'll answer your very first concern. Right now, I think if you're like most people I talk to, everybody from my libertarian friends to my progressive friends, the common thing goes something like this. Am I crazy or did the entire country seem to go crazy overnight? Like I knew we had differences, but it just seemed to get out of control yeah. and now we're, we're at each other's throats we don't trust each other we have this massive polarization like what happened if all of that was rooted in hard truth like privately we just no longer share the same values then we're in really big trouble but that's not really true and we'll talk about how we know that we have more private opinion data on the american public than probably any other organization and i'm telling you it is shocking how much commonality we have across demographics on the things that matter most. The problem is that we don't believe that it's true. Hmm. The problem is the collective illusion. But if we can become aware of this phenomenon, the good news is collective illusions, while they are very powerful when they're in force and can do enormous damage, which we can talk about, they're actually incredibly fragile because they're social lies. If you shatter them, history suggests you can make social progress at a scale and pace that would otherwise seem unimaginable.
0: This is a podcast about the future of teaching and learning, so I'm curious about collective illusions in our schools and in the learning environment generally. How many of our educational policies, our school design, our classroom experience is based on accepted truths that don't actually hold up under scrutiny?
1: There's probably no other institution that has more collective illusions right now in society than public education. We have been tracking private trade-off priorities of the American public, including parents with oversamples of underrepresented communities for many years. The takeaway from all of this deep research is that people want different, not just better. Their broad private concern is that they are questioning the very purpose of education. They are sick of the one-size-fits-all narrow path to a very even narrower view of a successful life. They are sick of their child being treated as basically a cog in a system. And that focus on a different purpose cuts across all demographics. There isn't a single demographic in the U.S. where a majority of people privately want the status quo system we have. Here's the problem. When we ask them what they think most people want, you get a completely different answer. They believe that the overwhelming majority of Americans are more or less happy with the status quo system. This is the problem, right? Because public education is a collective good, not just a private good. So we're entering a time when the overwhelming majority of the public wants a different purpose for education. They want more of a say in their education for their child. And they just are stuck in an illusion where they think they're largely isolated and alone in that desire.
0: All right, Todd, so you've got me hopeful now because this excites me. Right? Most of us, most caring adults, want an innovative approach in our schools and other sites of learning. So, how is it that our administrators, our master teachers, our librarians, our school boards can resist the collective illusion that we all want to snap back to something very normal and very traditional and, quite frankly,
1: old? Well, it's, it's pretty easy, right? Based off of Frederick Taylor and scientific management, because we thought the system mattered more than the public, we went about severing almost every feedback loop between people and the institution. How would any parent right now, how would we know what it is they want for their kid? And how would that desire make its way into the system in a way that the system could respond to? Not to say that the economy is perfect, but let's take a free market. It is nothing but feedback loops between consumers and the producers of things and they are exquisitely sensitive to changing priorities and values. The good news is we can do that. We can build those feedback loops. We can actually make this system more responsive. If we don't, I really believe we have put at risk the very idea of public education. If I'm a parent, I don't want a one-size-fits-all system. I know my kid's distinctiveness matters and I want something that's focused on cultivating her potential and allowing her to make her best contribution. If the existing system isn't doing that, and I can afford a private solution, I'm gonna take it. Because I'm not gonna sacrifice my kid and their potential in the hope that someday something will change. I think you see a flight from public education. And I think we're actually seeing that now. If you look at the numbers, uh, the numbers have not returned. And for me, that is so worrying because I believe a collective willingness to support public education is one of the greatest achievements of a free society ever. 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 I'm the first to say it's not doing what we want. But I'm still damn proud that we have a public education system, and proud that we had built one, even a standardized one, that bet on the privileged many rather than a privileged few. We have to shatter the collective illusions around public education so that for the public, we reveal our shared values, our shared aspirations for this critical institution. We have to start showing people a better way forward. They have to see that their values and priorities are being instantiated in education, even in small ways. Because right now there's a lot of despair, this fatalism of like, nothing will change. And so I look at this and think that nothing happens on the back of despair, change happens on the back of rising expectation. This is Greg
0: Bear. I'm talking with Todd Rose, the co-founder and president of Populous and the best-selling author of Collective Illusions. So Todd, back in 2013, you co-founded Populous, which you describe as a new type of think tank. Can you tell us a little bit about Populous's mission? What
1: questions do you aim to answer,
0: and what makes Populous's model so unique?
1: So I co-founded it with a colleague of mine, Dr. Parisa Rohani, and it was born out of our lab at Harvard when I was a professor there, but we spun it out. You know, my background is a combination of neuroscience, development, and systems, complex systems. And... What's really puzzling to me about American society today is we continue to operate as if the world is zero sum, meaning for me to win, somebody has to lose. And what's funny about that is if you look at something like the economy, we move beyond what was called mercantilism that was assumed, oh no, economies are zero sum. If you're trading, you're losing. One country's gain is another country's loss. And Adam Smith, he proved that wasn't true. And if you went from competition to cooperation, you could generate material abundance. But what's the point of material abundance, if not psychological abundance, if not flourishing, happiness, joy? And it's there where we've stumbled. Because even though it is easy to prove that psychologically you can generate positive sum outcomes, right? Win-win. We have structured our institutions and our norms as though it's not true. So let's just give an example in higher education, including my old employer who, you know, I love the people there. Harvard is considered elite in part because of how few people it educates. Think how wrong that is. And it's not their fault. It's just part of the game, right? We literally structure things with like false scarcity and we use comparative metrics to decide whether we're winning or losing because we assume somebody has to lose. In education rests on that faulty assumption, a zero sum, and a really, really terrible view of human potential. So Todd, let's
0: talk about that human potential because among the insights that have come forward from you and your colleagues and populace is this, that an overwhelming majority of Americans now define a successful life as following their unique interests and talents to become the best they can be at what they care about most. I suspect that's a surprise to a lot of us listening to you right now. So I'm guessing this is more than just follow your passion.
1: What is this all about? So here's what's pretty remarkable. When you look at the American public's private trade-off priorities, it's pretty encouraging. The groupings that matter the most are things like relationships and character and education. People wanna live fulfilling lives, they wanna make a contribution. And for the life of them, privately, they do not understand why someone has to lose for them to win, they just don't. That's the good news. The bad news is, back to these pesky collective illusions, When you ask them in the same trade-off instrument, what do you think most people would say? The portrait of success that you get is this zero-sum, status-obsessed, winner-take-all, grubby, gross, hollow view of a successful life. And let me put a finer point on that. We believe, most Americans think most Americans wanna be famous, and it's not even close. Like we think that is the number one attribute out of 76 by a country mile. In private? it is actually dead last. Collective illusions don't get bigger than that. Let me show you why it's so important that we work to shatter these illusions, because if you don't, this generation's illusions tend to become next generation's private opinion. Our kids don't know that we're lying about our views, right? And they internalize it. So this issue of fame, my colleagues at UCLA have been studying how middle school kids internalize themes from media and culture, and for the longest time, the dominant themes that kids were internalizing were character related. And, and like that's not surprising when we had, you know, Mr. Rogers and stuff, that that, right? Like not sense. surprising. A few years ago it changed and it hasn't changed back. Now, the number one thing is I want to be famous. Because we're unwilling to be honest about our views, because we're so worried that if I tell you I don't care about being famous, being rich is not my primary goal. I just want to live a good life. I want to be a good person. I want to have close relationships you will think that I am soft. Like we even had people in our focus groups say that they wouldn't tell their friends about their view of success because they didn't think they'd understand. I mean, think how isolating that makes us feel. However, no amount of achievement on what you think other people see as success increases life satisfaction at all, Hmm. at all. Okay, so we have every reason in the world to pursue our own view of success. And the fact that our views of success are so individual, what is motivating and fulfilling to me is not the same as what's motivating and fulfilling to you. It means we are not all competing for the exact same thing. It means that this diversity of what we care about, there's a path for all of us. We can all get to a place where we're leading fulfilling lives and we can make good contributions. So Todd, you referenced Fred Rogers just a moment ago. And as you were
0: speaking, it made me think of his encouragement that each of us has something worth giving. It seems to relate so much to that sensibility that we have and our clarity about what success means. And so I'm looking to you for hope again. Tell us about some of the ways that education systems are changing to better serve that goal of helping learners leverage their individual interests and talents. What progress have you seen?
1: There has been so much progress all around the country in big and small ways in school districts, and out-of-school systems that are innovating and putting pressure on the public system to do better. Even during COVID, some of the homeschool cooperatives and things like that did some really remarkable things, not as a threat to the system, but as an instruction manual, right? So here's a few things that I think, not surprisingly, a really great, more personalized, more development-focused education system is not going to look exactly the same in every community. It's just not. Just like Individuals are distinct, communities are distinct, in important ways. So in a democracy, the kind of public education we're looking for is decidedly pluralistic, but there are going to be some fundamental principles and things that will always be true there. There's three really important things that every system has to have. And if it's missing, I I can tell you right now, there's no way it's delivering on the purpose that we want. The first is broad, flexible design in the curricular materials themselves. It's pretty funny, when you get to personalization, the first thing you do is ignore any one person and design flexibility in the system. There's a pretty straightforward way to do that. It's called universal design for learning. That whole design approach is embedded in federal laws. You could do it tomorrow if you want to. And it just means like, listen, in every classroom, in every community in the country, kids are gonna vary on things that matter for learning in very systematic ways. In every classroom, kids are gonna have slightly different reading abilities vocabulary levels, ways they process information, things that matter to them. We, we just know that. And because it is systematic, because you already know that's gonna be true, you can design for it. So you get the flexible environment. We know how to do that. It's already happening in pockets all over the place. The second thing is a focus on mastery learning. We have 40 some odd years of research on mastery learning. We know how to do that. It's unacceptable that we allow some kids to just muddle through because it wasn't a good fit to begin with when you don't have to. And what's so cool about mastery learning is, while early on kids tend to take a little more or less time learning, as they acquire the background knowledge, actually kids become more and more similar in how long it takes them. It's actually not more inefficient. It doesn't take a lot more time, but the kind of academic outcomes that mastery learning produces will just blow your mind. There's no bigger effect size in education that I'm aware of that can produce this reliably than mastery learning. The final thing, and I think this is the the sort of holy grail for me, and it's where I get really nervous about personalization, is ultimately learning is a human endeavor. Relationships really, really matter. Our teachers matter. Their relationship with our students matter. The relationships between students matter. So as long as we recognize that our technologies can and should be in service of facilitating those relationships, we will get somewhere really, really meaningful. But if we think we're gonna take a shortcut and we're gonna teacher-proof a system, I'm inclined to tell you that the algorithm is what's so amazing, right? And you should pay me a lot of money for it. It's just garbage. So focusing on the relationships and empowering teachers who are gonna know the kid better than just about anybody else, bringing parents into that relationship, that's how we're gonna get to this place where we really do have an education system that we want and deserve.
0: This sounds like a perfect threefold design roadmap for operational planning for every school. Broad, flexible design for learning, focus on mastery, and utilizing everything that we can technology, time, et cetera, in service to relationships. Amen. Todd, how can people find out more about the amazing and instructive work that you're doing?
1: The easiest, if you want to know more about our research, go to populist.org, and you can see all the research we do and will do there. And otherwise, you know, you couldn't follow me on social media or just go to toddrose.com.
0: Todd, before we go, just one more question. What's one thing that parents and educators can do today to make tomorrow a more promising place for every learner?
1: I've been delving into the research around mindsets, and I am consistently shocked by the effects of the sort of attribution teaching kids that we really believe in them. Like it's unbelievable what happens when a child genuinely believes that the adults around them believe in them. And I think as parents, as teachers, we just presume that they take our constructive criticism constructively, that they think that we're on their side. I am just blown away when I look at the research on this randomized study giving kids really, really critical feedback on writing with the only difference was one group had one line before the criticism. The teacher said, I am giving you this feedback because I believe in you. That one line not only led to significantly higher scores on the writing in the follow-up, it actually predicted higher GPAs generalized outside of that class a year later. So, We can't lose sight of the fact that we are social and emotional beings and as kids, seeing ourselves through other people's eyes, seeing that people believe in us, in our potential, in our potential for contribution and fulfillment, makes a bigger difference than we often realize.
0: That growth mindset research that you know so well tells us that unless the caring adults around kids genuinely, authentically believe in their potential and the kids know it, the growth mindset doesn't matter. Thanks again to Todd Rose, the co-founder and president of Populous, and the best-selling author of The End of Average and Dark Horse. His newest book, Collective Illusions, Conformity, Complicity, and the Science of Why We Make Bad Decisions, is available now. Remaking Tomorrow is powered by Remake Learning. Learn more at remakelearning.org.